there was nothing about that day that was easy for him. He was used to early mornings. I mean, a governor has to do late night, early morning, but a 5 a.m. trial, really? As procurator of Israel, Pilate was told that it was urgent, that there was this national crisis. But it didn't take him five minutes to figure out this is not a national crisis. This is a petty squabble of jealousy of the chief priests. This man standing before him, this, this Jesus, this peasant carpenter, he was no threat to Rome. Now, they did charge him with saying he was king of the Jews, and that would have been a death sentence. But with his first few questions, he realized Jesus is not talking about the kind of a kingdom that is, that is a threat to Rome. And so he tried to dismiss the trial. <laughs> the Jewish leaders were having none of it. In fact, if you count them all told, Pilate tried 10 different times to release Jesus in, in several different ways. Even his wife came and burst into the courtroom and said, hey, you better have nothing to do with this man because he is innocent. I had a dream about him. Now, to you, maybe to me, a dream is just a subconscious thing at night, but to the ancients, it was a communique from the gods, and she was actually right. And Pilate, it's kind of surprising that he would defend Jesus like that because everybody knew he hated the Jews. And you might wonder, why is he in Palestine leading as governor if he hates the Jews? Well, that was just a stepping stone to his political career to be a senator. His mentor, a guy by the name of Sejanus, got him the job because it was lucrative. He could tax these peasants, and on their backs, he could rise to power. That was his plan, but he, he hated Jews. And so it might surprise you that he would defend him like that, but one thing you can say about Romans in general, and Pilate in particular, of all you could criticize him for, he did have a penchant for justice. He knew what was right, he knew what was wrong. And in a court of law, he was going to stand by his principles until they threatened him. You see, recently his mentor, Sejanus, who was a right-hand man to the emperor, attempted a coup to take Tiberius out. It was probably the right plan, but when he got caught, he was killed. And everybody in Sejanus' orbit was under suspicion, including Pilate. And so when the chief priest said, if you don't give us what we want, we will report that you are no friend of Caesar. And the Jews had a way of getting their way with emperors. And in that moment, Pilate capitulated. And he tried to wash his guilt off by washing his hands. But you and I know today that he killed the king of glory. He killed the son of God to save his own petty political career that would only last for three more years. In 36 AD, he was recalled to Rome for mismanagement and exiled. And I suppose if Pilate were here today, he would tell you that was the worst mistake of his life. Now, some of you can see Pilate in a mirror because you have neglected or rejected Jesus in order to build your career or your reputation or your pleasure and now you see what a costly mistake that was. 
Well, Pilate had no choice at that point to, to give Jesus over to his guards. And for them, Jesus was not a human being. He was, he was an animal, and they treated him like an animal. With their fists trained for war, they would beat him in the face until his nose was broken and his eyes were swollen shut. And they stripped him of his robe and tied his arms around a pillar so that they could lash him with what they called a flagellum. It's not a whip. It's, it's basically a rake for the flesh. And from his quads and his calves and his chest and abdomen, his back, he really was torn to shreds. Seven, six out of 10 men died from that alone. And there Jesus was with ribbons of flesh hanging from his back. And then they took the cross. And not the whole cross, just the cross beam. They called it the patibulum. It was about 100 pounds. And they put it on his fleshly torn back. And they marched him through the streets of Jerusalem down the Via Dolorosa. And the crowds, when they saw Jesus was captured by the Romans, they thought, he can't be our Messiah, and their praise turned to mockery. And at one point, Jesus' strength gave way under the weight of the cross, and he fell to the ground. And the soldiers grabbed an innocent bystander. He was just on the side of the road. His name was Simon. He had come from the country of Cyrene. It's North Africa, kind of Libya area. Simon, he just came to Jerusalem to worship God. It was Passover, and that's what the Jews did. Now, because he was so far away, where he lived, they probably didn't have a lot of Jews. And so when, when he brings his boys, maybe they're in you know, teenagers or early teenage years, <laughs> he doesn't want their culture influencing his boys, so he takes them on this Massive trip, probably a once-in-a-lifetime journey to Jerusalem to see the temple of God. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he wants his boys to love their heritage as he loves his heritage. But now, by the side of the road, he's just drawn into this drama that that was not the memory he wanted to make with his kids. It was shameful to carry a cross. And to have to carry it for this criminal? I don't know how it happened. But some 25 years later, we read the names of Simon's two sons, Rufus and Alexander. They're actually mentioned in the book of Romans. Somehow from that day, these boys saw Jesus and realized he is the savior of the world. And his crucifixion that their dad was a part of changed the trajectory of their family. They weren't just loyal to Judaism. They were loyal to God and his son, Jesus Christ. I don't know if any of you can relate to Simon's story. that The worst day of your life actually became the platform to change your family. Crises have a way of putting in perspective the eternal today. And Rufus and Alexander, they didn't hate their dad for what happened. They followed him, not just to the cross that day, but for the rest of their lives. They used their lives to preach Jesus. But for today, they're going to walk that way of suffering, the Via Dolorosa, right to Golgotha. 
And as Simon carries the patibulum to Golgotha, when he gets there, he lays it at the feet of the centurion. He was a trained executioner, and it was his job to carry that. I doubt this was his first execution. But this is the most memorable for him. Because centurions in general, you know, they lead 100 men. That was the highest officer, the highest official role that an enlisted man could achieve. And so the centurions were the backbone of the Roman army because they had the, they had the heart of the men below them. They, he understood them. But he also had the ear of the leaders above them. So this centurion, he's been listening. He heard what Pilate said. And he realized that this was a kangaroo court. This was not about justice. And he was probably offended by that. He heard the crowds of the chief priests mocking Jesus, saying, he saved others, why can't he save himself? And then the crowds along with the chief priests, they're not very creative. All they do is imitate the mockery of the leaders and they say, he saved others, he can't save himself. And then he heard his own soldiers under him repeat the same stupid mockery. But you know what else the centurion heard? He heard Jesus speak from the cross, which is difficult when you're pinned to a tree because you have to push up on those nails. You have to pull up on the nails in your hands to get a full lung of breath. The very nails the centurion had put in his hands, he's pulling on, and the first thing he says with that labored breath is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that pierced this centurion like his nails had pierced Jesus' hands and feet. He heard with Jesus' final breath, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He, he was witness to all of it because he was responsible for it. And of course, he's a centurion, he's noble, he's going to carry out his orders. But he's going to regret that he had to. Because three hours into the crucifixion, a eerie darkness fell over the land. It wasn't a natural darkness. This was, this was God veiling the evil that was happening. At the end of six hours, Jesus breathes his last, and the centurion heard God comment on the crucifixion. But not with words, with the rumbling of an earthquake. And the centurion knew that was God, and that was God's disapproval. And when Jesus' head bowed and his breath exhaled for the last time, the centurion said something that is truly stunning. He said, surely this man was the son of God. It makes sense that he was listening to Jesus when he said, Father, forgive them. That's the first thing he said. And the last thing he said, Father, into your hands. So he heard Jesus talking to God as his father. But for a Roman, son of God was a title reserved for the emperor. And the title on the cross said, King of the Jews. 
the centurion said, this is not the king of the Jews. This is the king of the world. I don't know if, if any of you might be able to relate to this kind of transformation right in front of you where you see something and you don't understand all that's going on, but you know enough to realize that this Jesus is not who the critics say. He is, in fact, the Son of God. And this centurion didn't know all that that meant. I mean, his, his confession of Jesus was not as crisp or clear as the disciples. And around the cross, there were a few disciples, not many men, one, actually, several women, and one of the women that he's looking at is this woman at Jesus' feet, and all she does is weep. I mean, weep. And he didn't know Mary Magdalene's biography. In fact, we only know pieces of it. It's kind of sketchy, but we do know that her life was sketchy. We know for sure that Jesus cast seven, seven demons out of her, she probably also was a prostitute, and sometimes those two can go together. When she first met Jesus, it was actually because she crashed a party at the house of Simon the Pharisee. She wasn't invited, obviously, and Jesus was laying at a banqueting table, and she came in uninvited and began to rain tears on his feet. She never said a word. She just wept there too. And after weeping, his feet, who Simon had not washed, had all this mud in it, and she took her hair and she wiped the mud from between the toes of Jesus' feet. And Jesus looked at her and said to Simon the Pharisee, you never gave me oil for my head. And you never greeted me with a kiss. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. And she's anointed my feet with her oil. You didn't wash my feet. But she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. That was when Mary met Jesus for the first time. And he said, go. For your sins are forgiven by your faith. <laughs> Funny thing about Mary. She never went. She, she, from that day forward, followed Jesus everywhere. And wouldn't you? I mean, some of you can relate to Mary's story because you, you had this weight on you, this guilt on you. And nobody could take it away and nobody could alleviate the shame that you felt for what you had done. But Jesus somehow came along and he took it away. Mary wouldn't know this yet, but he took it away by the very suffering that he's going through right now. Her sins were forgiven. And, and you may look in the mirror and see a little bit of Mary because, man, if it weren't for Jesus, where would you be? Who would you be? Mary wants so bad to wash Jesus' feet, but she can't. She can't touch him. He's pinned to a cross, his feet are bloody. She would do anything to alleviate his suffering. She would do anything to wash his feet again. And she thinks 
that his life is over and therefore her life is over. She's wrong. Little does she know that in just three days, she would be given the privilege of being the very first witness to the greatest event of human history. A woman in a misogynist world, she is going to have the honor in all four gospels of being the first one to see him alive, the first one to announce the resurrection. God bestowed on her, maybe because of her loyalty at the cross, but God bestowed on her the greatest honor of human history. But that's a story for another day. Jesus, glory. 
some mystical, spiritual, powerful way, I was there. I was there when he laid his hands on the cross and they nailed him. I was there when they nailed his feet. I was there when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so were you. And maybe you see yourself in one of these historical figures. Maybe they're a mirror for you to see on this Friday the significance of what Jesus did for you. We've created this service so that it's going to be very interactive and very free for you to find your place at the foot of the cross. For some of you, that's just going to mean coming down front on whatever campus you are coming to the front and just kneeling in prayer. Some of you would really like a pastor to pray with you. They're available on every campus, in in every room or in, in the lobby. Where you are, you can find a pastor. They're here for you, and they will stay here as long as you need them to. If you need prayer for healing or prayer for hope, prayer for forgiveness, prayer for clarity, Around every room are stations for communion. That really is appropriate for everyone on this day. So while the musicians are leading us in worship, feel free to stand where you are or sit where you are and sing. But at some point, I would really encourage you to take your family and have communion truly communally 
and pray together with your family or if you came with a friend or if you're here by yourself and there's someone that you know, it would be appropriate to pray together over the body and blood of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, at the end of this day, it is the body of Jesus broken for us and the, the blood of Jesus poured out for us that makes an otherwise horrible day Good Friday. <laughs>